Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptec, a robotics company based in Melbourne. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to my guest today. Dr. Dana Rezazadegan is a lecturer of AI and data science from Swinburne University of Technology. She graduated from Queensland University of Technology in 2019 with a PhD in robotic vision. Dana, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Nikki. Thank you for having me here. So I'm so excited about your, um, your feather in your cap. You a superstar of STEM of 2021 in the mix of 60 other amazing Australian women. Congratulations. And tell us more about this program and what this means for you. Thank you so much. And I'm glad you asked Nikki because I'm so excited about this program and uh, the impacts that we can have on the Australian society by programs like Superstars of STEM. Uh, actually, this is a two-year program uh, which selects 60 high-profile women in STEM based on their work and achievements and then support them to enhance their communication skills for their workplaces, uh, for media, for public speaking, talking to leaders and, you know, even politicians and uh, to gain equal representations as men in the media. Uh, and uh, let me just explain STEM for those of uh, uh, your audience who might not know about it. Um, although I'm quite sure that most of them heard of that. Uh, but uh, when we say uh, women in STEM, we mean women uh, who are employed in a range of roles in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, so, you know, even in Australia, we have less than 30% of uh, academic women in STEM fields at universities. And I'm sure that uh, it's pretty same figure or even lower for the industry. Um, and this is really concerning and uh, needs to be changed. Uh, you know, uh, if we have time, I can give you an example of the uh, society's um, gender assumptions uh, later on. But uh, this program uh, aims to change the people's perceptions about scientists, about, you know, breaking the society's gender assumptions that women can't be as successful as men in maths, in technology, engineering or science. Um, I remember when I went to US uh, as a visiting uh, PhD student, uh, you know, in academic, um, I joined uh, a group in University of Maryland. Uh, that was amazing experience for me and everything was good in academic environment. But, you know, when I was in public uh, and talking to general people, whenever that I mentioned that I'm uh, a PhD student in robotics and AI, everyone got surprised and uh, you know, not always in a good way, <laughs> sometimes in, in the opposite. And I remember that uh, one person told me that, uh, why robotics? You are a pretty woman. Why didn't you pick art or fashion or something like that? You would be more successful on that domain rather than robotics. And I was like, you know, disappointed and at the same time mad. And uh, these are the beliefs that uh, I'm talking about that we need to change. And this program actually tries to address these uh, wrong beliefs. Uh, so by raising the visibility of women in STEM and empowering them to share their stories and work with a general audience, not just academics uh, or industry professionals, this program helps uh, women to become role models for young women and especially for female students in high school. Uh, so what I personally uh, like about this program and I'm really excited about it is the fact that uh, you know it directs us to change wrong beliefs uh, from outside and inside, both of that. For making any changes, I believe that we need uh, 
to change ourselves first. And uh, this program trained women to smash their imposter syndrome, build confidence and embrace the opportunities. Uh, and uh, this is uh, as important as, uh, you know, changing the society's belief about it. Uh, so another thing uh, that I really like about this program uh, is the uplifting spirit among the brilliant superstars in there. And uh, I've seen it uh, already, and I hope that we will continue as we go. Look, I think they're fabulous. I've looked at the caliber of women there. You're all um, extremely well qualified and um, doing amazing things in your respective um, STEM careers. So, and I completely agree with you that it's very important um, I think the saying is that you can't you can't be what you can't see. Um, I, I think it's um, from the point of view of going to schools because you know my philosophy is I've got children and I always say things always start at home. But if you're not fortunate enough to have things start at home, then the next best place is at school. And if you've exactly. got people coming in and talking to girls and saying to them, "Look, this is, these are career options for you," and I firmly believe, um, you know, the STEM career options. There's more money. Like that's that's my starting point. I go just from that starting point you've got so many yeah. more options that you can go into um and i don't think that's necessarily highlighted for girls like this is actually you know today this is quite important you know to be able to financially look after yourself yeah um actually uh, you uh, pointed out a good point here uh, about the schools and about the girls in those ages because it's critical for them uh, to decide about you know their future major uh, early and um, sometimes they can be influenced by their family culture or you know the environment around them and uh, made a opposite choice than uh, what really they want um, and i see it um, uh, in uh, you know uh, high school uh, female students uh, from my country and also from uh, my um, friends here uh, that they are worried about their future and uh, yeah, even parents, uh, you know, pointed out to them that pick a major that you're going to be successful on that and yeah. they prioritize it, um, you know, on the interest and it's, it's not good. Look, I don't say money is everything, but certainly you want the options there because I believe women are equally, I think women are actually stronger in humanities, but they're equally strong in STEM. And um, I was reading an excellent article suggesting that it's normally again in that high school when they're picking the subjects they get influenced a little bit by their peer group and they go oh well there aren't enough girls here so they go with the boy like um they go with the girls because if they look at the boys they go they're the minority there but um they're equally strong like it's, it's not that they can't do it exactly yeah yeah, yeah so. I believe that so Listen, I wish you all success and I think it's just fabulous that you're one of the role models out there. So I think you're just going to be wonderful chatting to the girls. Thank you. It's nice of, nice of you to say so. Thanks. So you're a lecturer and a course director at Swinburne University as well. Um, tell us about your respective roles then. Uh, what do you do? Uh, what do you teach? Yeah, actually, yeah, as you said, I'm a lecturer at Swinburne and uh, my role actually includes uh, uh, three branches like teaching, research and leadership. And uh, I'm teaching data science units and machine learning unit to postgraduate students uh, who are enrolled mostly in Master of Data Science and Master of Information Technology. Uh, although in Swinburne, we don't have restrictions on uh, the background of the students study uh, anymore. So they can join from any major now. Uh, and the focus of my research is mostly on using deep learning and machine learning uh, to address the computer vision, robotics, and uh, healthcare problems. 
And uh, as a leadership role, I'm a course director for a new degree, Master of AI, which is still under development. We are working on it for the next year. And uh, also I'm a deputy director for Master of Data Science as uh, I teach three data science units every year. So yeah, I'm happy to do it. Gosh, you've got a very full um, portfolio and a lot on your plate. How do you juggle all of these things? <laughs> yeah, it's been hard, actually, and it's going to be. But yeah, it's what it is and what I accepted. So I try my best uh, every day to, you know, um, manage my time and uh, do everything uh, in a good quality. <laughs> That's good, because I mean, you know, like, for obviously, everyone's got time constraints and pressures. So exactly. um, how do you how do you manage your day? Do you get up and you have you got sort of a morning routine that you fall into? Yeah, actually, I have a routine. I get up early at morning and not that early, but I start my work uh, around eight. Yeah. And um, yeah, I continue. And sometimes uh, I would say that uh, my working hours extended to the night as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, not good as a routine, but uh, sometimes it's necessary. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm happy to do it because I love my job. Oh, well, that's good. As long as it just doesn't take over in your whole life, is it just your job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, True. so tell us about the robotics community at Swinburne. Like, what's that like? What What's in place there for students? Uh, yeah, actually, Swinburne is a small university, but it has a very friendly atmosphere that makes it convenient, you know, to approach other groups and uh, have collaborations. Uh, for example, I'm uh, based in the computer science and software engineering school, but uh, we have the uh, robotics school as well that we have collaborations. Uh, so there are a number of uh, research projects in the uh, intelligent robotics and AI field uh, that are currently going forward among all. Uh, I can say that we have four main streams, including the field robotics, uh, artificial intelligence and autonomy, um, human-robot interaction, and also assistive robots. And um, in you know each stream, there are several projects that um, students can join and work on it. Um, so yeah, uh, these are pretty much uh, the projects that we have in Swinburne, and uh, I think it's a good environment uh, for students to get in, uh, involved with the project and uh, work on it and, uh, you know, enhance their skills. And do you have like um, informal robotic clubs activities on campus as well that um, engage the students? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Uh, but uh, it depends on the different research groups that they're going to join. So we have uh, this research center, as I said, we have also research centers for data. Uh, yeah. which is pretty famous in uh, Swinburne. So based on their interests, they can uh, join the they can join and, yeah. Yeah, and use the facilities. All right. So you did your PhD at the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision. So was that with Dr. Peter Cork, I'm assuming, in that group? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and he's a wonderful man. Um, he, I've also had him on the podcast. So um, I, oh, have great, nice. I, I have great respect and admiration for him. Um, but you yeah. had a particular focus on human robot interaction, collaboration, um, action recognition and action prediction for assistant robots. Tell us a little bit more about your thesis. Sure. Yeah, I had a chance to do my PhD at Australian Center for Robotic Vision at QUT and um, as you said, you know, uh, they were a very brilliant team uh, directed by Peter Cork, and also I had a chance to work with Michael Milford as well. And, uh, you know, um, QT and ACRV uh, was where I started to learn computer vision and AI and use them for robotics applications. 
so at the beginning, um, my research topic was human action recognition for robotics applications, uh, which, uh, which is more challenging than computer vision applications due to, you know, environment diversity, dealing with motion in videos, uh, which is the case for robotics and so on. Uh, so um, after that, I started to work on human action prediction for a project in which uh, an assistive robot uh, could watch the current actions of human peer for an assembly task. Uh, and could recognize them and then predict the next action based on that. So this way, a robot could help human for the next action. For example, if you are trying to assemble an IKEA drawer, uh, you probably start with placing two panels together and then you would need to attach them by some screws. Uh, so once you start uh, placing uh, the panels together, robot predicts uh, that what would be your next action and based on that predict that you would need screwdriver for that action and uh, hand it over to you. So it's a simple scenario, but uh, the idea can be effectively useful in more complicated um, tasks, such as two persons assembly tasks in which you actually need an assistant. Um, while you might not have a friend around to help you. So in those cases, having an assistive robot would be beneficial. Of course. I mean, that's that's the whole point of having a robot is and, and that you don't have to tell the robot. The robot's actually predicting what you need in advance. Yeah. Is your thesis available for our audience to read if they want to? Have you got a link somewhere that you can send and I'll put it in the show notes? Absolutely. Yeah, I can send it to you. And it's on my Google Scholar page, the link to that. Okay. And also it's on QUT website. It's available for public. Great. Like you never know, someone may want to sit there and read some theses. I personally, um, I can skim over them and get the general gist. If it gets too complicated, I go, okay, that's enough for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're an honorary fellow at the Center of Health Informatics, Australian Institute of Health Innovation, Macquarie University. How far have we progressed with artificial intelligence in the field of healthcare? And in, and in particular, what challenges are we facing? Yeah, uh, actually, yeah, you're right. I finished my postdoc at uh, the uh, CHI, we called it CHI, Center for Health Informatics uh, in AIHI Macquarie University. And uh, uh, that was where I worked with amazing team of diverse expertise. And uh, actually it was really good experience in terms of teamwork on multidisciplinary area as well. Uh, and uh, I worked with the director of center who was the expert in health informatics, also with uh, interaction designers, with software engineers, and also with GPs. Uh, so uh, I was involved in several projects uh, there, such as digital scribe and um, speech summarization, precision medicine, and also detecting people's opinions toward the vaccination from uh, social media. Uh, I learned and practiced using deep learning for natural language processing there uh, that, uh, you know, enhanced my skills in uh, deep learning. And um, uh, to answer uh, your question about uh, that, how far we have progressed in healthcare in Australia, uh, we are still um, behind some countries such as US, I should say, but uh, at the same time, I, I should say that, uh, um, you know, the works are being conducted, are promising, and I can see a bright future in the field of research, actually. Uh, part of um, challenges that um, we were facing too, for example, for our projects, uh, was about sensitivity of data in healthcare domain uh, that I can mention. Um, and it's totally fair and understandable. Uh, and that's why we have a you know, hot topic these days called ethical AI. Um, however, uh, you know, it limits the resources that we have access for our research. 
And as you know, in my field, uh, deep learning and AI, uh, the most important thing is data. Uh, and it's like the fuel of uh, our machine here. So we can't go anywhere without it. And um, apart from that, we need more uh, enthusiasm from practitioners and specialists to work on research projects together um, on the open problems that uh, we have. And uh, because, uh, you know, their time is precious and we understand it, uh, some of them prefer to save people's lives rather than uh, collaborating in research projects. But uh, you know, they should imagine, I guess, the future world, which is uh, already influenced by AI and robotics, and a little bit more. Uh, so, you know, to catch up with uh, the trend faster, I think we need more collaborations to be able to uh, develop intelligent systems that uh, can reduce the doctor's work burden. And um, in some cases, um, you know, they can detect uh, disease quicker or maybe more accurately. Um, uh, in many domains. Yeah, I was listening to a panel discussion on um, AI and healthcare from um, the Artificial Intelligence Center in Queensland under Dr. Sue Kay. And one of the doctors there was just mentioning, and this was just last week, that it's, it's such a long and involved process to get all the parties to sign off on, you know, as you say, this, um, the sensitivity around privacy. And um, he was working on a project and up until four years and it was just about to get it all the major players together and then COVID hits and he said, look, you know, like that, now you'll have to go and see everyone again. So, um, you know, exactly. just reiterating what you said, like it's enormous, it's a huge project to do just to get everyone to talk together. And I know, um, you know, Australians that we, we um, the, the on the government website where you give doctors permission to cross check your health information, people are, they're very reticent. They don't really want to do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, even uh, we de-identify all the, you know, data that we use, still uh, it's sensitive uh, in terms of some rare disease that's uh, maybe mentioned there. And also in terms of using the facilities that uh, they are not based in Australia, for example, such as speech recognition engines, uh, which is based in the uh, US. And uh, if you want to use it, um, you know, they don't agree easily that you send your uh, data uh, to those engines, even for processing, not for saving, not for storing. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a deal breaker for some developments, yeah. Well, I, I can understand it because, I mean, as a consumer myself, I'm a little bit like, I go, well, who's got access to my information? And, exactly. you know, the cybersecurity attacks in Australia, uh, there was some statistic like it's nearly one a minute after the um, the Australian bushfire when all that money was raised. Like that, it was an immense amount of cyber attacks that we had. Exactly. Yeah. And it's fair. And uh, we need to find a solution for that, you know, by um, developing those facilities here in Australia quicker and uh, yeah, make progress in those domains as well. Yeah. So, so what are examples where you think we've made a bit of headway um, in, in healthcare and a difference? Yeah, actually, um, there are plenty of examples that I can mention. Uh, let me first uh, emphasize one point that, uh, you know, many people ask me because uh, they are not clear about it. In any scenario that we use AI in healthcare, uh, we are not trying to replace doctors by AI. Uh, what uh, we do is using AI as a second set of eyes that can uh, you know, enhance and complement the doctor's expertise and opinions uh, by having access to their broader database, actually. 
so we can have a smarter healthcare by use of AI. And uh, I think the most critical difference uh, that digital health uh, makes is uh, care coverage for people who may not have an access to the uh, good um, healthcare facilities in their areas, perhaps. Uh, and uh, thanks to the AI, they uh, can connect to the broader health database and use more reliable recommendations and treatment advices from the experts. Um, another example uh, can be the AI-based conversational uh, chatbots uh, to improve um, reach and responsive and personalization of the customer experience, actually. Uh, and this would be the trend of 2021, I believe. And these intelligent uh, agents, you know, use the natural language processing and also machine learning techniques to better understand uh, what the human says and uh, needs uh, in order to uh, provide a more natural and, you know, near human-like uh, communication. So um, in other words, AI-powered uh, uh, chatbots um, kind of mimic human conversation. And uh, yeah, this is a big difference that they can make uh, for uh, actually improving the patient care. Uh, I can give you other examples. Um, uh, one of the projects that uh, I actually involved uh, during my postdoc was about, uh, you know, using AI in consultation room to reduce the documentation burden for practitioners. And um, um, you see, you know, I think I'm sure that all of the audience uh, have this experience that they sit uh, in the consultation room with GP and uh, he or she is trying to type every important points uh, that patients is saying about the history, about the symptoms, uh, previous treatments and medications and so on. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, she or he uh, makes a lot of effort to not miss any point of your speech. And uh, there's no time left to talk talk to you uh, and focus on uh, what you're saying and what you need as a care. Uh, so the scientists um, actually uh, try to make this um, like uh, easier for doctors uh, by removing those uh, documentation burden. Um, and uh, using AI, uh, we can uh, have an agent who listens uh, to the doctor-patient conversation, automatically grab the uh, important health-related parts because part of the conversation can be uh, not related to the uh, healthcare, just, you know, talking daily conversations. So it can detect uh, those ones and remove that, remove that, and then categorize all the health-related conversation to like family history, allergies, medications, and so on, and send it to uh, the doctor's screen. And doctor just need to uh, you know, have a look after uh, finishing the consultation and double check it um, and have the generated summary automatically. Uh, so this is one example, uh, one practical example that uh, I would say, but there are many other examples such as uh, like early detection of tumors, for example, for predicting the uh, most effective treatment based on the uh, even patient genes uh, that we can do with machine learning algorithms and um, using the motivational teaching robots for physiotherapy or for rehabilitation activities uh, for kids, especially that's, uh, you know, a, a robot that can watch and correct their moves. Uh, and also uh, helping uh, the patients with dementia uh, to finish their daily activities is one uh, area that uh, I can believe, um, you know, can uh, make very good impact. And uh, it's uh, kind of involved my previous research in PhD. Uh, program as well. Uh, and yeah, there are lots of lots of, uh, you know, works in surgical robotics that I don't want to talk about. At all. 
Look, it's, it's a fascinating field. And I mean, I think we're just at the cusp of, we're just literally starting. I, for me, I would imagine it's the adoption rate of the doctors actually using all of this AI available to them. I have to say that my um, our recordings, I transcribe them, and you mentioned that the doctor has to read it over, and definitely because I'm, my my service that I'm using, like I have to like quite a few words just based exactly. on the people I'm speaking to and my accent, let alone anyone else's accent that I'm going, oh no, that's not what it said. So um, in a way, it could be a little bit of double work, but if you like it's a bit like Siri the more you use it the better it's going to get yeah exactly and these are uh, those that you mentioned uh, are the challenges or the value challenges that we are facing to in this domain but you know once we overcome those challenges and we can have a reliable system uh, it would be much easier to use for doctors and it would uh, you know accelerate their process of consultation for them having more time for patient care personalized care and uh, that's really valuable and i think uh, it's uh, you know it's worth uh, investing in that domain Definitely. So you started your journey as an electrical and electronics engineer. I have to say, I looked up both of these fields just to see what it encapsulates. And you could have had about 20 different like careers that you could have gone into. What, what steered you towards robotics? <laughs> That's true. And actually, I changed my direction a couple of times, not 20 times. <laughs> but uh, we would be super... Uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, when I say it uh, to everyone, uh, they got surprised. Uh, but uh, I should say that when my parents asked me as a kid uh, in primary school, uh, what would you select as your future job? My answer was becoming a computer engineer and create robots who can do what I teach them to do. And, uh, you know, it's funny that it's pretty much a fair description of what I do now. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I lost that direction after high school education and I attracted to electrical engineering more. And uh, I thought that I can do the programming in the side. And I did. Uh, so after getting my bachelor in electronics, I immediately joined the industry-based research center as uh, I had a tremendous passion to, you know, experience the industry and working. Uh, and uh, I used to work on designing circuits and electronic systems, but after a while, uh, I felt there was something missing there. Uh, and uh, it's not like uh, the work that I want to work for, uh, you know, the rest of my life. I needed something more innovative uh, that I can use both my knowledge and creativity at the same time. Uh, I wouldn't say that uh, my job was boring, but, uh, you know, it couldn't satisfy me. So I decided to uh, pursue my education in robotics field. Um, and this is the field I believe that is, uh, you know, you can see the live uh, impact better. And that was why I changed my field to control engineering and uh, learned control theories and uh, tracking systems for robots like AUVs. Uh, I'm fascinated by the uh, world of uh, robotics and at the same time, I learned neural networks and I liked that. And uh, due to all gender polarization issues that um, actually I had in uh, my home country, Iran, uh, with my job and career and everything, I finally decided to apply for PhD program in Australia, and uh, I got uh, I was lucky that I got funded position from QUT and UNSW that uh, I picked QUT because uh, of my interest, you know, in robotics. And uh, later on, when I started as a PhD student, I learned uh, deep learning, which was fairly new in that time, back in early 2015. And I decided to combine it for robotics applications under my supervisor's guidances. 
And um, that was where I eventually felt that, yes, this is what I want to do for my future career. And, um, you know, because it's innovative, it's promising, state of the art, and at the same time, it's fun. Uh, and I can't imagine the future world without it. So why not? <laughs> That's what you, so um, speaking of examples, how did you decide to become an engineer? Like, have you, is your dad an engineer, your mom? Like, where was the example that you decided this is what you want to do? My parents actually are well-educated with bachelor degrees, but not engineers. Uh, but my uh, siblings, all engineers, and uh, I was the last one. I was the baby. So, <laughs> yeah, I had uh, yeah, a couple of uh, role models. <laughs> okay, so are they all brothers or have you got sisters that are engineers as sisters well? Sisters also, yeah. One oh, brother, well, two sisters, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and actually a... all in electrical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's brilliant. So they're your examples. You can go and see they can do it. I can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, I was like, you know, Alves, I was like that. They can do it. I can do better. <laughs> of course. I'm the youngest. I've got the same attitude. Anything my brothers and sisters can do, I can do better. Yeah. <laughs> so how have you found, um, obviously, Brisbane is a completely different climate to Melbourne. Have you adjusted coming down here and living here? Yeah, actually, in between, I lived in Sydney as well. So uh, it's kind of, you know, the you, you graduated. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I'm trying to use the, you know, weather in Melbourne is colder and it's windy, but it's okay. Yeah. Oh, I like the city. Oh, it's brilliant. So on a personal note, do you, do you have a mentor? Do you think this is, in, this is important, whether you're male or female? Does it matter? Um, actually, I have different mentors time to time, but um, I should say, unfortunately, I didn't have a regular one uh, as they are all busy, uh, you know, but uh, I, of course, I consulted with them whenever I needed uh, their advice. And um, I'm lucky that uh, they've always happily supported me, actually. Um, and um, they were not just um, women. Uh, I had a, a man mentor as well. Um, however, having a regular mentor, I think it's the most important thing that uh, every early career researcher or PhD student or anyone in academia or uh, maybe in the industry, if they want to research uh, through their majors, uh, yeah, they would need it. And uh, uh, I think, um, you know, um, for um, I think that one of the achievements of the superstar program for me would be having a regular mentor and life coach that I can uh, benefit from uh, her advices and uh, you know uh, the guidances um, and um, because you know the mentors can give you advices for your career and shed a light on opportunities that you have um, that you might miss if uh, you know they don't have any mentor because they're gonna remind you and they're gonna make you brave to accept them you know it's important yeah i think you're touching on something important there and having access to a whole range of women already in the field that um, may or may not have gone through your journey already in some shape or form that you can tap into the experiences and i think the the really great thing is they may just talk to you and just even um, just in passing, just give you information because you've got access to all these these women. That That's the important exactly. thing. You, it's there and you're actually meeting them and you're exposed to them. Yeah, exactly. We have a brilliant group of people that are available and we can, uh, you know, even expand our network uh, using them. And yeah, it's the um, actually main point of the program to uplift each other and create opportunities for each other and help each other through the program. Oh, I'm sure you're going to be a fantastic ambassador. I, I look forward to seeing what you're going to do in this space. Thank so, you so much. That's nice of you. 
So career challenges, what's what's been like the hardest thing for you to do and how have you handled it? Yeah, actually, uh, the first career challenge that, you know, I had, uh, I was back in my country, as I mentioned before, and uh, I was always in a field that uh, was not acceptable by the society as a girlish major, uh, while men were dominant. Uh, so building my career in a level that I believe uh, I deserved uh, was a big challenge there. Uh, fortunately, I was uh, among those lucky ones who had a job there, but uh, still it was too far from uh, what I could achieve, and I believe that. So here in Australia, and the situation is uh, much, much better, uh, but still we have a long way to go as uh, women who cares about gender equity. And apart from uh, the fact that, uh, you know, I'm still uh, dealing with gender diversity issues in my field uh, that sometimes reflects in research collaborations as well, uh, I had some career challenges time to time. Uh, I think COVID situation in Melbourne was the most recent challenge for all of us. And uh, it was particularly challenging for me as I started my job as a lecturer remotely. Uh, I just see my colleagues and my students virtually and handling the new way of lecture uh, delivery and tutorial delivery was a new challenge. Also trying to uh, you know, start collaborations uh, virtually uh, was something uh, that was uh, you know, challenging. And uh, I tried uh, to compensate the lack of face-to-face -face interaction with my students by creating virtual environments such as uh, Discord channels and uh, through the continuous email interaction with them, uh, which was time consuming, of course, but it worked really well. And I got very good feedbacks from my students. Uh, so in terms of uh, collaboration, what I did to handle uh, you know, the challenge was trying to be more initiative uh, as I usually am, and uh, find research projects that I have common interest with. Um, and yeah, uh, I try to uh, handle those challenges like this. Well, I saw um, in my research that you, you've got had about eight or nine papers that you were involved in that were published. So I think you were very busy last year doing all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm trying to uh, do it in a best way. But yeah, sometimes it happens that, you know, uh, I have some concerns about that and I need to work more through uh, one of the fields. So yeah, it's all about managing altogether. Look, I think I think your enthusiasm and as a lecturer and a teacher and um, you know, I, I, I often say that we unbeknownst to people, we mentors anyway, because we're always watching each other. It, it's not as though you can go about your daily business and someone's not watching you. You just don't know it. But someone's always watching you to see how you behave and what you do. And um, certainly your enthusiasm for what you've achieved now, um, yeah, I have to congratulate you. I think it's, if I was a young lady, I would love to be a student in your class. Thank you. That's nice of them to say so. I hope that my students feel the same way. I'm sure they do. You've told me they've given you great feedback. So Donna, yeah. in closing, like any any advice for um, just general advice that you want to impart with our audience? Yeah, actually, maybe just one advice for early career researchers. I'm still early career researcher, so don't get me wrong. But yeah, if I want to have any advice, it's uh, it's uh, aim for progress, not for perfection. And it's important. That's not just for early. That's for everything. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Make that your motto because you can just get stuck on perfection and go, I'm not even doing anything. That's brilliant exactly. advice. <laughs> so if any of our listeners want to contact you, um, can I put your email address in the show notes? Is that okay? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I regularly check my uh, Swinburne email address. 
uh, yeah, you can use it for your notes. And also I'm in LinkedIn and Twitter. I use it for professional uh, you know, activities like this. And uh, yeah, and they can reach me out uh, through each of the social media, yeah. Super, Donna. Thank you so much for your time and joining me today and to the audience out there. Oh, look, I, I hope it you was, had it. It was really lovely talking to you. I enjoyed every moment of that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Listen, and when, I'm in, when we're a little bit uh, allowed to move a little bit uh, more, I, I see we've just gone sort of back into lockdown today, sort of semi-lockdown. Um, I'd love to come to your university and maybe come and have a look what you're doing there. Sure, yeah. I'm All looking right. forward to that. <laughs> Thank you. And to our listeners, I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Have Donna. Nice Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.